Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the manager who broke the curse of the Millie Goat, Joe Madden. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a two-time World Series champion. He's a three-time manager of the year recipient, and he's currently the skipper of the L.A. Angels. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Madden. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Booney. It's been a while, but uh, when I got the invitation, I definitely had to accept. Uh, it's great to be with you. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah, I, I snuck a little peek at you. I was up in Seattle when your Angels were in were in town this this summer, and I saw you briefly. But yeah, it's been it's been a while. It's been a while. Right out of the yeah. shoot, what's on your playlist right now? On my playlist, I um, <clears throat> I go in the morning. Uh, I have this really cool pad in Pennsylvania. It's in Sugarloaf, PA. I got these old school Sherwin Vegas speakers, like 1980 Sherwin Vegas, and I have them hooked up to a nice amp. So in the morning, I'll, I go between 60s and sometimes 70s on weekends, and then classic vinyl. Um, primarily, I go up and down. Do I want it more chill today? That would be the bridge. I think it's Channel 17. Something a little bit more raucous. It goes to 26. And then there's some days I just want to go back in time, and I go to 60. So I'm all <laughs> over the map. I dig it all. I do. I, I love it all. It just needs to be loud in these speakers. Are out. That's the kind of speakers you had in your dorm room back in the day at Lafayette College. They're outstanding. Very cool. It, probably the only guy I can give you a run for your money, Tim Flannery, he, on the oh, really? on the yeah. play on the playlist. You know, I I played. Flan was a coach when I was in San Diego, and he he was into it pretty heavy. Um, born and raised in Hazleton, PA. Now I know you're in PA right now. You you go back and forth between Pennsylvania and, and Arizona. I want to hear a little bit about Joe Madden growing up. What was he like? What was he like as a kid? Well, honestly, that's um, I've been talking about that a lot. And whenever I come home like this, I come here to get grounded again after a long baseball season. I love to come here for about a month or two. Uh, as a kid, this place was, and I think a lot of others would say the same thing, but this is the best place in the world to grow up as a kid. I mean, it was just nonstop all day uh, playing. Like in the, in the summertime, of course, was baseball. In the fall, it was football, and then it got to be cold. You go inside and you play basketball. So it would just be those three things. And, and the different leagues, the coaches uh, that you experienced um, on so many different levels, it was all about sports. Uh, my dad was into it. My dad was a plumber. Uh, my mom uh, worked in Michael's restaurant as a waitress. And so they were always there. They supported everything I did. Uh, but it was a seasonal thing here, man, and you did it. You did it. You did it. Uh, whatever the sport was, according to the season – and uh, you were raised by, of course, your parents, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, uh, your coaches, your teachers, friends. I mean, everybody had the right to grab you by the scruff of your neck and say, you know, we don't do that here. It was really a well-disciplined place, and everybody um, uh, had a part of your growing up here. So I, I just like to see more of that. We're trying to do something like that. I want to get into it now with our project here, the Hazleton Integration Project. I want Hazleton to be, again, the best place in the world for a kid to grow up. Yeah, you mentioned that. I grew up a little bit after you, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm a Jersey kid, so I do where, remember where those. Jersey, I, I, where, 
Where? I was in South Jersey when Dad played for the Phillies. It was just okay. over the bridge, okay. Cherry Hill area. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was actually a suburb of Cherry Hill, which is Medford. I don't know if you're familiar with uh-huh. that. but uh, I am. Absolutely, yeah. It was just, it's different. It was a different time. Um, and, and maybe growing up on the East Coast, a little bit different at, for my childhood. But I, I miss those days, too. I mean, it wasn't about, life was, it seemed like it was a little bit simpler. You know, we didn't have computers sure. and stuff telling us what to do all the time. We'd get on our bike and hang out with our buddies. And if we weren't playing street hockey and having to move the, the net away when mm-hmm. a car was coming or, or touch football. Right. or You remember Tony Franklin with the Eagles? Well, we, we'd play touch football. Oh, yeah. And I put up a, uh, okay. I put up a, a field goal post in my backyard, and it'd be snowing, and we'd score a touchdown, and and I'd have to kick the extra point barefoot. And this is what I'm about seven. And my buddies are looking at me like, "Oh, Brett has to kick the extra point barefoot, like Tony Franklin." <laughs> but I, th- those are my childhood memories, and they are. They're That's so what cool. That's what we did. You always emulate. Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. I was yeah. Orlando Cepeda at the plate when I was a kid. High back elbow, close stance. I would never advocate that today. I wanted to be Bob Gibson on the mound with the delivery and very quick delivery falling off to the first base side. I wanted to be Joe Namath uh, as a quarterback playing football. I wear white shoes, and my my face mask was bigger. It wasn't the normal two-bar mask when I got to college because Namath wore a heavier mask. I mean, all these dudes. I Basketball, I was an St. Louis Hawk fan. I wanted like Jumpin' Joe Caldwell was my guy back in the day with the Hawks and Lou Hudson was my favorite. And there came Maravich. I mean, you knew everything about everybody. You knew where they came from, what school they went to, where they grew up. Um, you had to say you identified so closely with these guys. And I, I, I again, you're right. It was simpler, I guess. Uh, and I, I'm an advocate of do simple better. That's one of my slogans. I don't know why we need complexity or being complex, complex all the time in order to think that it's the right thing to do. I prefer the other way. I mean, how many wiffle games you play? I mean, I, I couldn't get enough wiffle ball. Yeah. Whenever there'd be, you Absolutely. know, as long as we got a ball and a couple kids around, that was like a daily occurrence. It was. We played what we called fastball. We got a sponge ball, and across the street from my apartment was a uh, the high school. So you painted a box on the wall, and it was you and another kid, and it was a, you, you painted a, uh, a, a rubber on the ground that you would pitch from, and you play all day, literally play all day, and it was like, over the awning at the third base luncheonette was a homer. Um, in Mr. Zelenok's yard was a homer. If it bounces over, of course, it was a double. And there was two perfectly placed telephone poles that were the foul poles. It couldn't have been better. I know growing up, uh, you're a catcher, I think. Yeah, what? And, a quarter, and a quarterback. I didn't know about yeah. your football prowess. But uh, talk to me yeah. a little bit about that. And you ended up going to Lafayette College. Right. Uh, I, th- yeah, I think I was, it was in 72 or 73. Yeah, exactly. I graduated high school 72. And uh, actually, my football was the sport that got me to school. I was this one that I was supposed to play for a long time. And uh, I just started hurting too much. But I was recruited by quite a few schools and some bigger schools, too. And uh, uh, But I ended up going to Lafayette, uh, which was a great decision eventually. I played my freshman year there, uh, football. And my last game was against Lehigh. And I'll tell you, uh, four touchdown passes, 14 for 17, 13 in a row, and then I retired right after the game. I just did not want to play football anymore. I want to play baseball. So I went there on a, a financial – they didn't have scholarships. It was financial need uh, based on what your father or your parents could do. 
So I had a financial need kind of a gig there. They gave me like 4,000 bucks here. At that time, Lafayette was $16,000 for four years. Now it's like 60,000 for one. Um, so I went there and uh, the baseball actually the program was outstanding. Uh, Norm Gignon was the manager. My uh, uh, whole infield uh, played pro ball, Artie Pichetti, Bobby Argeni, Bobby Mollenhauer, uh, Mike Tripiolis, uh, a bunch of guys. We all went to pro ball out of a Lafayette College infield, man. It was, it was a really good gig. We played good ball, played in the summer times at, um, with the Scranton Red Sox, and then the Boulder Collegians is how I got signed. But football was my game. But it started, I, I just had such a desire to be a Major League Baseball player that it trumped playing football. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code BOONE this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Angel Skipper, Joe Madden. Free agent, you signed with the Angels in 75. Uh, mm-hmm. And you end up playing four seasons. And you go into the minor leagues like the rest of us, you know, probably blinders on. You know, we grow up mm-hmm. dreaming of being big leaguers one day. Uh, how the, how was that minor league experience for you? I know it lasted four years. And, and when did you start to mm-hmm. have a feeling that I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to continue this or I want to go in a different direction? Eventually, obviously, been a big league skipper for a long time, long time on that side of the ledger. But uh, take mm-hmm. me through those four years and, and how that transformation came about. Well, you know, like, like just like you did, and a lot of other guys, I wanted to play in the big leagues. Um, that was the that was the point. Um, so I signed. I think it was twenty one. Uh, I had a really good first year in Quad Cities, uh, but I was a non drafted catcher, and that kind of put me behind the eight ball. It was a little bit different back then uh, regarding uh, who got opportunity and who did not. And I, and not listen, I'm not playing. I was not good enough. I get that, but I didn't really. After the first couple of years, they really backed off on my playing time and. I had, I had one scout come up to me one time, uh, Lloyd Christopher, who I believe is one of the best that ever lived. And Lloyd came up, he played for the San Francisco Seals back in the day. And he comes up through this piercing, steely blue eyes and says to me at 23, when are you going to stop playing and start coaching? That was in Visaya during batting practice. And I wanted to smack the guy, you know, as much as I respected him. But there was guys there at that time, uh, scouts and Managers and coaches. Moose Stubing was another one who was my manager, Chuck Cartier, that thought I should be doing what I'm doing now as opposed to playing. So they started pushing me in that direction. 
Um, I knew, in fact, I knew obviously, but that my fourth year wasn't going to happen. And uh, I got out of it for a bit. I went back here to Hazleton. I worked in a home for juvenile delinquents and then eventually went back to uh, Boulder and played for Baldy Muschietti. Baldy's the guy that got my career going. Baldy owned the Boulder Collegian, spent a summer there. And uh, Jim Deeks was the manager. Tony Gwynn was on that team. Mark Langston was on that team. Spike Owen was on that team. Riley Newman, uh, Joe Carter. We had a, we had a great group. Uh, so I was out there for that summer. And at the end of that summer, I'm working in Baldy's liquor store in Boulder, Colorado. I was a clerk. And one night, Larry Himes called me the eve of Thanksgiving and offered me a job as a minor league manager and scout. So eve uh, Thanksgiving 1980, I get a call from Larry. I had also just recently got a, uh, an opportunity to go play in Italy. This was tough. I mean, I'm about 25, 26, single opportunity to go to Italy to hang out for a bit. So I had to think about it, but I also thought uh, much more longevity based on staying with uh, the Angels in baseball. So that's what happened. Um, so I knew I was out. Other people involved were recognizing something within me that I didn't even know I had. And then Larry Himes gave me my break on the eve of Thanksgiving. And I, oh, I started again on January, January 1, 1981 to be a scout and minor league manager in the Angel organization. You were manager in the minor leagues, 81, 86. And I think you, you became, you had a more of a rover position up until 93 before you get to the big leagues. Correct. During Correct. those minor league managing years, did, was there something inside that say, yep, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. Was there something about that coming to the ballpark? Just the, the grind of it all. Did, did you know what, what your calling was? I did. Um, yes. But I, I also knew I needed to get to the big leagues. Uh, as a coach uh, first, I, never having played a minute in the big leagues, I knew, at, particularly at that time, it was really almost impossible to get a job as a major league manager had you not played in the big leagues at some point, even as a coach. So I knew how to get there as a coach in order to become a manager. And my argument was always, how many years does it take as a um, major league coach? Or how many at-bats? Like, Would it take one major league at-bat or 10 years as a as a major league coach in order to become a major league manager. I didn't know what the equation was, but I worked through it and eventually got the opportunity. But yeah, I, I knew I wanted to do that. It wasn't easy, man. I mean, I rode a lot of buses, a lot of outposts, worked with a lot of guys, got a great uh, list of, of players that I worked with that had made it to the major leagues very successfully on a high level and have been great for themselves. Uh, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. I always tell my kids the struggle is the best part. I feel as though I've earned everything I've gotten to this point and I earned the right to be there in the first place. I don't think that happens all the time anymore. So I'm eternally grateful that I didn't get an opportunity before it was my time to get it because I knew when I did get it, I was ready for it. And I'm I really, I was grateful. I was 51. I became a major league manager. I think it was 40 or so became a major league coach. And that's after working in the minor leagues since I was 26, 27. So I think that's the way to do it. And I, like I said, I'm very grateful that it happened that way. Get to the big leagues in 94. You'll be there from 94 to 2005, and we'll get to it a little later. A lot of, a lot of the years, uh, those are some fun years mm-hmm. in the early 2000s, that, that American League West. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were with the, with the Angels, I was with the Mariners. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to talk to you about early on. And, and kind of, you know, the game, the game is definitely different today. A lot of things I, I do like about it. A lot of things, uh, you know, they're not my cup of tea. 
But the one thing that has come in is that the analytics of the game have changed so much. Uh, how, how big league clubs, they approach games, how we defense uh, opponents, you know, pitch counts, all that stuff. But did you start experience with, with that side of the ledger early in your coaching career in the big leagues? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was on that stuff in the mid-90s. Um, the thing is, we were doing a lot of the same stuff. All of a sudden, they give it a different name, and it becomes a little bit more mathematical, and all of a sudden, it sounds like it's something new, but it's not. Um, I used to break down stat sheets uh, in my own way back in the day for uh, Marcel and then for um, Terry Collins and then for Soch. Um, so I was I did have a little bit of a head start with it. i uh, been into the numbers for a long time, and I believe there's a balance to be derived uh, between both sides, uh, analytically today, what's, what's going on. I think my, my opinion is that analytics really serves acquisitions first. Number one, uh, that's where the, this, the numbers are really the most important, like this time of the year, when you want to go out and buy uh, or acquire or trade for new players, this is where analytics, uh, the, 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 the larger sample size should be more paid attention to. And I get it after that, uh, analytics really benefits defense, which you see on a daily basis. Defenses have uh, really prospered, benefited. Batting averages have gone down. All kinds of different things have occurred because of defense and positioning because that stuff is accurate. That stuff is always going to be accurate. And you could use a large sample size there, and there's not going to be <clears throat> a trend that takes you away from what, how Brett Boone's going to hit, as an example, or how uh, Mikey Trout's going to hit, for example. Uh, those things pretty much stay static or, or for a period of time. Then it goes to pitching. Uh, pitchers then get the benefit of analytics. Um, if you know where to throw the baseball and you uh, hitter's weakness, uh, there are going to be trends with that based on how a pitcher feels or how a hitter's reacting. Um, so they're, to me, they're, they're very good, but I think they come in second place to defense uh, regarding analytics on a daily basis. And third place is the hitter. The hitter's in a reactionary position. Everything else is proactive. And the hitter, to me, truly <clears throat> uh, experiences uh, – trends or small sample sizes during the season. And I've had, I've had discussions with analytical dudes. I want, I want trends. What they do is they bake in trends uh, into the larger number and they believe that that satisfies. It doesn't satisfy me. Uh, hitters can be different uh, from April 1st to July 1st till, till August, August, September, then in the playoffs. I got to know where this guy's at for the last 10 15, or, or 14 days. So these are my arguments regarding analytics. Uh, when it comes to acquisition, go for it, man. Use as much as you want. Uh, defense, believe it. It's true. This works. Pitching, pretty solid. Um, you, you have a pretty good idea where to throw and uh, how often. And the hitter, where the hitter, the, the hitter gets uh, the short end of the stick with this, and that's why you've seen such a great decline. I think with all of the uh, offensive numbers over the last several years, there's a lot. Uh, there's, there's a little benefit going to the hitter compared to the rest of the game, and that's how I see analytics. Support for the Boone Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. And guys, when it came to the equipment I used on the field, it was so important. From the bat I used to the glove I used to the spikes I wore. And when it comes to personal grooming, just as picky, Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I'm blown away by the performance, the craftsmanship, and the details on the 4.0 are next level. 
Also, the underwear. The underwear is unbelievable. They're as comfortable as any underwear I've ever worn. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code Boone. That's promo code Boone at manscaped.com. And now back to my interview with Angel Skipper, Joe Madden. It's it's so interesting. I mean, even if we go back uh, to my last year, you know, 12, 13 mm-hmm. years ago, you know, when we go over, you know, and we have the, our typical uh, hitters meeting uh, before a series with the ball club. And I, I got to a point when I was, you know, in my veteran years where I just kind of look at whoever was running the meeting. I'd say, you know what, guys, you know, what would serve us a lot better. Just check the paper. Who's hot and who's not. You you led to that with you saying, I want to know the last 14 days. That is crucial. Mm-hmm. That is crucial. Mm-hmm. Who's hot and who's not? Let's let's defense that way. And this is before we got into it. Another really interesting point to me, and, and we've mentioned Sosha already. I had Sosha on the podcast. He gave me one of the most interesting breakdowns, and he talked micro mm-hmm. versus macro. And he mm-hmm. explained it to me in a different way because anybody can just, you know, you hear and you hear the layman's, uh, usually an ex-player is going to go, oh, no, we, we do it this way and all this analytics. And it's a real layman argument. Well, well tell me why. Learn about it a little bit. And then, then you're in a position to uh, debate. I thought Soch, being from that being from that generation managing in, in 2000 and then managing in 2019, he's seen us as we've gone through this uh, entire gamut. And he had a really good ex- explanation of the micro versus the macro. How do you sit when, when it comes to that, that uh, topic? Absolutely. I mean, he and I should talk, uh, we would talk about that too. Um, there is a time for the micro and there's a time, there's a time for the macro. Okay. There is absolutely. And like I said, that's, to me, that's you're talking acquisitions. I want as much intel. I got to look under the hood. I got to look, uh, you know, under underneath every stone. Uh, okay, I'll give you a great example. Um, uh, Logan Forsythe. Logan Forsythe, when uh, the race picked him up, uh, Andrew Friedman uh, was working with Andrew at the time. Told me about Logan, and the reason why they got onto Logan, because Logan was not a very successful minor league player, I think, with the Padres, but. At that time, Andrew was uh, uh, dabbing into the idea or the thought or the new concept of exit velocity. And I don't know how the, you know, where the, where the numbers came from, but found out that uh, Logan had great exit velocity, among the best out of all the AAA players that year. But his numbers, uh, his batting average and all the other uh, routine or uh, traditional stuff weren't as good. And then what that means, they deem you a little bit unlucky, you know, the bat at ball and play stuff. So we get Logan based on exit velocity. And I see him for the first time. By the way, if you ever shake Logan's hand, it's up. that's like a blacksmith from the 1800s, man. This guy is so strong from the fingertips to the elbows. And that's why I wasn't surprised. Ball hit hard all the time, all the time on the barrel, hard, uh, uh, well struck. So we pick him up. He bad luck. But then all of a sudden he started missing guys. And then he became Logan. Forsyth, he became a really good major league player. Um, that to me is, I think that's more macro oriented, uh, Carlos Pena back in the day, we got Carlos based on the same kind of the same stuff. And even one winter, Andrew calls me up about Fernando Rodney after, you know, I, we, everybody thought Fernando was done and he said they were a hot on him because of the different reasons or variety of stuff that they had done work with. And they were betting on him for the next year. And I think that's when he had the 0.6 something ERA that next year. Um, so this is, that's to me, the micro, 
I mean, excuse me, the macro. The micro for me is like, for instance, uh, a couple of years ago we're playing uh, Cleveland in a playoff uh, wild card game in Cleveland. Alex Cobb, I don't remember if it was one of the, it might have been Carrasco. One of the pitchers uh, for the Indians was reverse split right hander, and uh, Andrew and the boys were pushing for Matt Joyce to play, but we had Delman Young, and I really liked Delman on this guy reverse split um, in the moment. I thought it was a better play. Uh, based on a variety of different reasons. When, I, when you have face, so if you're left-handed, you're facing a good reverse split guy from a right-handed. I don't like it. I mean, reverse split righties on lefties could beat those guys up. So as it turns out, Delman hits a really big home run that night. We win the game and move on into the ALDS. More of a micro decision. Um, I want trends. I believe in trends. I believe in trends. And I, I need all of this stuff to make a, a good decision in the moment. I look at everything. I look at everything before every series. I look at everything before every game. But uh, there is such a thing as experience, which leads to feel. And if I try to explain feel to analytical dudes, they're going to they're gonna turn their head. They're going to roll their eyes. Because to me, feel is the gift of experience. And I'm, that, that to me is a part of a micro moment, too. So I can go on and on, brother. Listen, I think about this stuff a lot. Uh, and I, I, there is a difference. There is a difference, and I'm still waiting for the analytical department that could give me both. Give me the big picture, but give me the snapshot, too. Yeah, because like you said, you, the, the reverse split, you made a decision that night to play Delman. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, what, what, what the analytics just on their face, when, when you put them up on the screen, okay, they look great. You, you're, you got to take mm-hmm. into uh, account that manager might have watched a small sample size. You might have watched Dillman Young against that guy, five, six at-bats. He might only have one hip, and you go, I saw those five at-bats, and they were really good. Tell me if I'm right Correct. going down the right lane here, and that would be a feel, which, which I think is such an important thing for a great manager. You need to be able to look, and everybody's not the same. If I'm looking at a, a, a Garrett Cole or, or, a, or a Verlander at this stage of his career, mm-hmm. you're probably going to treat him differently than you have a kid that's been in the big leagues for two years and hasn't earned that ultimate trust that, that another player is. I, I don't know. Am I going down the right path? Is there something no, to right, that? Right on. Right on. Absolutely. Um, you know, here's the, I mean, the, the third time through the batting order gig, which is very, very prominent these days. Um, right. Who's on the mound? <laughs> right. Who's, who, uh, was it Webb, the kid for San Francisco? Oh, the man. Look. Well, right. I mean, uh, I give Cap credit because Cap is, you know, uh, San Francisco's got a lot of, they're dripping with analytics, but Cap let that kid go in the playoff game. Was it a playoff game or getting to the playoffs? Whatever it was. I mean, that is a field move for me. Uh, right. I, I, for my money, if you could get a young pitcher and have him pitch a complete game, doesn't have to be a shutout, it's just a complete game. A mind once stretched has a difficult time going back to its original form. It's, it, it transforms this kid. Uh, we're talking pitching right now. Um, so I'm all into that. I'm not, I know there's a lot of more pedestrian pitchers that I believe the third time through really, yeah, you got to pay attention. And then there's some horses that actually get better during the game. And there's some horses that if you take them out, the other team would just thank you, uh, you know, vociferously. I mean, you finally took this guy out of the game. So there's difference. There's every night's different. Every night you gotta, you gotta listen and watch. And, and that's why I don't even sit in the dugout. I don't know if you ever noticed I stand on the rail cause I need to feel everything. And I do Uh reverse split. You talked about that with hitting that happens 
a couple of years ago, we were playing Usina in New York, and uh, Usina, Jay Mo's catching, Jay Molina. So all Jay Molina did to left-handed hitters was get outside, turn his body in. He's a wide body, turn it in, and Usina would backdoor it all day. Backdoor to the, to the lefty all day or a changeup down and away, and the ball never got to a lefty, and he would eat him alive. I had Ben Zobris and Fernando Perez both hit right-handed that night. And I had to convince them both before the game to give it a go, please. Because uh, I wanted more right-handed bats in the, in the lineup. First, that bat, Zoe had, had a bat at bat. He said, Joe, what do you, I, I don't know. I said, Joe, listen, please, give me, give, give me one more at bat. And next at bat was a double down the right field line. So I had him. First at bat by Fernando, line drive base at the left field. I mean, these are the things that I've uh, been doing for years, man. Been doing it for years. I've uh, been on the reverse stuff for years. And a couple of years ago, I ran into uh, Bob Melvin managing the Oakland A's and uh, uh, Joel Peralta, heavy reverse guy, heavy. So it was beautiful because you bring him in the game and they pinch it, they bring the lefty in and that made it even better. But Bo Mel did not pinch it for Johnny Gomes that night. And Johnny Gomes hit a three run home on the left center field stands because he stayed in there against Peralta. You know, these are the things, man, that this is the stuff that you got to pay attention to. I need to know who we're playing against. I need to know what the manager thinks and how he thinks. I got to know which players are doing what right now. If you want me to make a good decision, but if you just want to make, uh, you know, the analytical uh, scripted decision and because you're going to say, because over a period of time, it's going to work in your favor. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. There's a thing, and I'll just last point. You could, you give up a game because you may, you go at a decision based on something that, uh, uh, a front office. It just, you, that's the thing. There's a sometimes a voice in your back of the head, back of your head, what the front office told you about before the game, and they give you the stuff, and they should never do that. They should never give you like advice for the game, because then you're, the, regardless if you're going to use it or not, the voice is there. But if you lose a game based on uh, advice that you know in your heart of hearts you don't really dig, you don't think it's right, and it's a bad loss. That could, that could end up in the next game and the next game and the next game. It happens. So I'm very aware of, of uh, losing streaks that uh, begin with an ill-advised decision. So analytically, um, I, like I said, I'm in. I don't like when you're advised before the game on what to do. And again, not that I'm going to follow it, but I don't want it in my head. I need a clear mind to uh, manage this game. Give me the info. Give me the intel. Then get out of here. Get out of here and let us do our jobs. No, and I love your, your what you say about the feel for the game because it is. The great skippers, uh, even well before the analytical generation that we're in mm-hmm. now, the great skippers have that great feel. They have a great – they have a look. They have a, a presence about them. And it seems when they make a gut gut – you know, a gut decision, it's usually right. Mm-hmm. Those are the great ones. I mean, if you're not going to make any gut decisions or, or you're not going to use your feel, well, you might've just roll it out there, roll the computer out there. We don't, we don't need you. We don't need Joe Mad. <laughs> we can just play no, it with just, the analytics and then we'll have a, we'll have your, down. we'll have yeah. your assistant sit in the chair after the game and answer the computer right. questions. <laughs> there you go. Exactly right. Have somebody from the front office, put a unigram on, come on downstairs and sit there. It's so much more complex. It's so much quicker than that. There's so much more involved in it uh, that I, I, I know it doesn't get enough credit and people don't understand that. Um, at the speed of the game from ground level in the dugout is warp speed compared to sitting, I don't know how many seats up or how many feet back from the, the actual playing field or watching on TV. It is incredible. 
And the, the, the part of experience, the feel part of experience, what that does is help you to take all those RPMs and slow them down so that you can't think in the moment, that you can't think in advance of the moment, that you can utilize. Listen, I, it's never, you're never, I say I'm in the moment, I am, but the moment could be like two innings from now, three innings from now, uh, you know, two bullpen pitchers from now, four spots in the batting order from now. So your present tense as a manager is always kind of like futuristic, actually. I want to skip to the uh, early 2000s. And like I said, that was sure. the time, uh, you know, it was the uh, the Mariners, uh, my yeah. Mariner team, uh, the Oakland A's, uh, Angels. You guys win the World Series in 2002. <laughs> but that was a fun two or three years of there. I mean, that was, you got teams, you know, you got two teams winning a hundred games in the division and uh, you guys, you guys came up in 2002 and snatch it from us. But I want to talk about the way Sosh ran the game back then. And I always, when we come to town, we go to Anaheim or you'd come up to our place. I'd always say to everybody, listen, these guys are going to run you into the dirt. They're going to run right in your face. Yes, Ichiro, mm-hmm. e- even you in right field. They don't think you throw that good. So be ready for these guys to go first and third. I was ready. Sean Figgins used to, you know, because defensively, I kind of knew what I was doing. But Sean Figgins mm-hmm. on third base, he would make me twitch sometimes. Like, this guy, yeah. I'm playing infield in, and this sucker's going on contact. I know he is right mm-hmm. now. I'm not used to people going on contact when I'm infield in, and I know he's going right. to do it, you, you know, but but that was mm-hmm. those Angels teams, and, and you had a great bunch of guys in those teams. I mean, really good players, but you ran the bases different than anybody else in the league. And, and I think to this day, that 2002 team, that was the difference you had on everybody else when you won the World Series this year is you just ran the bases better, better than your opponents. I can't disagree with you. I mean, it was, it was two things. Was that was the big emphasis in spring training? It's always the emphasis there. When I was there, was the base running, and the other one was to not strike out as often. So that that spring training, we really hammered on the base running. We really hammered on putting the ball in play. That team bat, batted around the batting order. I don't know how many times and how many times in the playoffs, just by purely just by making contact and moving the baseball and not striking out. The thing about Soch and our whole group. Um, and the thing that I really learned from Soch while I was there with him is the word fearlessness. Um, you cannot, if you are, if you're fearful at all, if you're ever afraid of making a mistake, if you're ever worried about a negative outcome, uh, if you're that guy, you're not, you're not going to play the last game of the year and win it. That's why the Dodgers have been so successful in the past. I mean, I met all those old Dodger dudes. Nobody was crazier than these guys. Nobody, nobody loved to play the game more than they did. And they were never afraid of making a mistake. Tommy, uh, the, the most, I mean, Tommy did just, Tommy was Tommy, man. He was the, he was the ringleader. And that, that group, that organization, they, they're, they're given credit for a lot of different things. But I think the one thing they nurtured more than anything was fearlessness. And uh, we're going to go out there, we're going to beat you somehow. We're not afraid to make a mistake. We are going to go first. If they we're going to put the bunt down, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to make plays. We're going to, the suicide squeeze, the safety squeeze was a part of it. All this stuff, fearlessness. And that's the thing that stood out to me about Soch. He was never worried about answering a question after the game if something did not work out. And I think uh, the Dodge organization where he was raised had a lot to do with that. I think coming from Philadelphia honestly has something to do with that too. Um, And so he and I had a great relationship. I loved working with Mike. We laughed a lot. 
but I think the thing that he doesn't, people don't talk about that enough. You got a you know, truly a fearless leader. That's pretty powerful. It's awesome. As a player, man, I welcome that anytime. Just let's go. Send them. Send them. Let's do it. Yeah, you had a great coaching staff, too. You had Mickey Hatcher, Griffin, uh, Buddy Black, and and then the team with, you know, Salmon and and Garrett and Ersty and, uh, man, Eckstein. Eckstein used to drive me crazy. You had such a good team, and they'd ask me, runner on third, less than two outs. Who do you not want at the plate for the Angels? And I said, it's easy. Eckstein, that sucker will hit a sack fly to the warning track every time, and you're not going to strike him out. And uh, yeah, that was a that was a tough team up and down. Uh, during this time, during that time, uh, you're getting a lot of interviews, uh, but you're getting no skipper jobs until '05. Um, you interview with the Rays and you get the job. You go with the Ricky Vaughn glasses. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you're co- and you're coming off the the heels of you know this guy I'm about to mention he's he's my all time favorite you know I played I'm a little bit biased I played for him uh, it's not across the board he he's kind of split down the middle you played for this guy and you're coming off Lou Pinella I remember yeah. before I remember in you know oh four oh five or. 0304 going into Tampa Bay and seeing those young players and they're like they come over to me and Booney, how'd you like Lou? I said, It's my favorite of all time. <laughs> and and there's a right. bunch of young players that lose being Lou and they're like, He's so hard to play for. I said, Ah, you gotta get over it, man. It takes some time. But uh you're coming off mm-hmm. the heels of Lou. He's he's obviously at the end of his tenure. Um how was that for your first? You've been waiting a long time, like you said, seventy nine uh, to two thousand five, before you finally get that opportunity to be a skipper. Yeah, but again, I was really grateful. It took me that long, and I I felt prepared to be that that guy. I'd been an interim manager a couple times. Um, um, Marcel Lachman re- uh, quit one year, retired, and uh, and then uh, John McNamara took over. Then Johnny Mack got sick. And then I had to take over for him. And then uh, there was another time Terry Collins got uh, suspended for eight games. That's when I worked my first National League game with TC was suspended. And then he uh, was let go in uh, uh, September. So I got a whole month once. So I, ha- I had experience and I run instructional leagues. I'd been a manager. I had been a field coordinator. I mean, I had my thoughts. I mean, I knew what I thought would work. And the difference is when you're in the advisory role, when you're holding somebody else's baby, um, you're not as, I don't think you're not, you should be as assertive, but when you're holding your own baby, you're being your own team, then you can be more assertive, more aggressive and enact what you think is the right way to do things. And quite frankly, um, to me, more than learning from, uh, guys that I thought did it really well, I thought I probably learned more from guys that I thought didn't do it so well, because as a Rover, you got to see so many different methods by different managers, your managers, as well as managers from other teams. So that roving experience, man, I was sucking it up for years doing that. I got to see so many different dudes um, do some things I liked and then do some things I didn't like. And then running instructional leagues and spring trainings. And you know, I was over my skis a lot. I mean, I'm sitting in like rooms and I'm running a room with like, I'm looking at Johnny McNamara. I'm looking at Dave Garcia. I'm looking at Bobby Gritch. I'm looking at Rick Burleson. I'm looking at all these guys with you know, stellar major league careers. And I'm the guy that's in charge. So you have to get over that and you have to, uh, you know, put, put forth your, your best thoughts and advice and how you want to do things in front of guys that, you know, were better players than you were. So 
all of this experience added up. And um, like I said, I was grateful it took so long because by the time I got to the Rays, I was ready. You hook up with Andrew uh, Friedman. You guys had a low payroll. You inherited a bad team. Uh, and you turn it, you turn it around pretty quick though. Um, but before we get to that, I want to just mention Don Zimmer and your thoughts on yeah. him. Iconic hey, baseball man. guy, man. Just everybody loves, uh, Donnie. Well, Zim, um, you know, that's, that's a very reverent ground for me. He, um, he and I got to be like really good friends, really good friends. I think what happened was as he got to know me, he saw a little bit of uh, himself in me, uh, the fact that I was willing to try do, new and different things that I was kind of open-minded to like a lot of what he had to say, like a lot of guys at Zim's age or uh, at that point in his career were mostly there just primarily for evaluation purposes. But Zim was a, str- a strategist. Zim and I would talk stuff all the time. And actually after, you know, the first couple of years he'd come in, after a game at home, he'd bring in a bag of Coney Island hot dogs. He'd sit at the other, you know, on, at my desk, and we would giggle about the night before. Well, I knew you were going to do this, but did you think about doing that? And God, I love the safety squeeze. I'd have done the same thing you did. And, and one of the, the biggest thoughts, or the, the main thought he ever gave to me, and was, I thought it was always interesting, if it comes to your mind, do it. <laughs> if you think about it, do it. Uh, and I'm still waiting for the bases loaded, one out, full count, starting the runners. And it's going to happen, brother. You got to have the right hitter, David Fletcher's the right guy for that play. Zim used to do that with the Cubs. I wanted Jeff Kessinger, uh, uh, Kepinger to do it a couple of years ago. Never set up. Full count, one out, bases loaded with the right hitter. It's, that's, that's a hard matchup. But Zim was all into it. The safety squeeze, I've said to Zim. Safety, yeah, is, safety I asked, squeeze. I, I asked Zim, I said, what's that play you did with Jeter? He bunted to the first base side, and we couldn't do anything about it. He started giggling. So we went out there, and he showed me exactly the mechanics of it. And then we added one twist to it based on a, a guy missing a sign in Pittsburgh one time, one of my players with the Rays, and we added a little twist. And now, man, we got the right matchup. We got the right hitter. Um, just primarily the right hitter and right runner at third base. It's wide open. But that started with Zip. And every spring training, when we'd go through the explanation with the players, I'd have Zim go out to home plate. Zim, please do this for me. You go out there and you explain the safety squeeze. Love the man. And last point, I said, I asked him one day, Zim, you know Yogi Berra? He started giggling at me. So I know Yogi. And I said, I'd like to have dinner with him. So that spring training, he set up dinner with me, Yogi, Zim, and Mike Butcher went out to dinner. And because of that, Yogi and I became good friends. Yogi would come see me. He'd play the Yankee sta- at Yankee Stadium, old and new. I'd walk in the, in the manager's office, and he's sitting on the couch waiting on me. Where you been? What took you so long? You know, he'd be sitting there waiting to talk to me, and I promise you everything we talked about in the previous time I was there, he'd be asking questions about. It was Zim's the best. Zim's the best. Uh, you take over. And you mentioned it earlier, running the bases. We we both talked about it. Yep. You, not only you, but Soch, uh, that that was your kind of your way. And it kind of, it turned into the Rays way. Is that something that every mm-hmm. spring training you started with? Always. That's all. I mean, that's, that started instruction leagues in 1984. I think it was my first one. I mean, I think it was the first one I was really in charge of. Dante Bichette was on that team. Um, I think Devo was there. Maybe Macklemore was there. 
Jackie Howell might have been there. It was a really, uh, really good group. And I sit him down, and I, I would sit him down in right field, the field number two. That was at my opening meeting, and I'd say to the position players, okay, we're going to talk about a lot of things here, but the main emphasis for everybody sitting here today is going to be base running. By the time you leave this camp this, this fall, you're going to be a much better base runner than when you came in. And a lot of it was based on fearlessness, and it was about uh, he who hesitates stops and try to get the third base with less than two outs as often as possible and not the, the phrase, don't make the first or third out at third base. So try to like really restructure the way guys thought. And the other guy, the proponent was, was, was Whitey. When Whitey came in, God, I love Whitey Herzog. Me and Whitey are good. Whitey came in for a brief period of time, but Whitey's concept was this in spring training and instructionally, if you're on first base and the ball's hit in the outfield, you keep going. Even if you get thrown out at third base, I don't care. Just keep going and find out what you can do. And that was Whitey's gig. And I followed up with that, too. We, we try to do the same thing. Just go. And then if you, after you've done that several times, you will start making good decisions because then you'll know when you can and cannot actually do that. So it's been, it's been part of that group. Um, and that's what I'm trying to get done now. Believe me, man, our, our spring training – Last couple of years uh, has been all about that. It's going to be all about it again next year. Uh, we've gotten better, but I, I want to keep pushing the envelope. I love that because I'm telling you, just as a, you know, this has been my entire life watching the, watching this game, playing this game. Mm-hmm. And it stands mm-hmm. out so much, especially in 2021, mm-hmm. when you have a team that plays that mm-hmm. aggressive. Because I try to tell mm-hmm. these people, and even when I was playing, these out, these, these defenders, they're really good. But you put pressure on them constantly. They're not quite as good uh-huh. as you think they are. And and I think, man, just the aggressive outs, I got no problem with that. And I, I, I love that facet of the game. I think it's uh, overall, I, I don't know, but but I, I get the feeling that it's undervalued and not, you know, on the on the top of that important shelf right now. But it really should be because that 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 never goes away. And I think if you're trying to gain an edge in, in razor thin margins in today's game mm-hmm. with the talent mm-hmm. level, man, you can carve one out. Like we run the bases better than you. That's a huge advantage over 162 games. Can't agree with you more. Cannot agree with you more. The problem is this. When an out is made on the bases, oftentimes somebody from the front office will come downstairs after the game and they'll ask the coach about it or me about it. And then they'll have to, the coach, more, more than me, will have to go to the player and talk to the player about it. That is the quickest way to, to, to create a station, a station atmosphere around a, uh, a major league baseball team. I'm not an advocate of any of that. And I don't, want, I don't want that at all. But that's what's happened. That's where, because outs made on the bases are so met with disdain that um, that's been happening since, I don't know, early, middle 2000s to like, you know, 2007, 8, 9 when analytics really started popping up outs on the bases uh, to the uh, front office types that really bothered them. Bothers. Listen, we don't want to make an out on the bases either, but with your point, I mean, that creates this aggressive nature mentally. And then the next time you get this opportunity and all of a sudden you slide, the ball hits the runner in the back and it goes into the dugout and he scores, then it's cool. Then it's good. You have to take the bad with the good with all this stuff. Everybody wants everybody to be perfect. And perfection is a really boring concept. And if everybody were perfect in this game, you wouldn't even want to play. You wouldn't want to play. I love golf so much because it's so imperfect for me right now, and I'm trying to work through things. But if you were perfect at anything, you would stop doing it immediately. So there's, this, there's so much of that that I, I really have a hard time with. But 
um, you know, I'm, I'm first one to talk to my guys about it. I'm working for a guy right now, Perry Manassian, who Perry gets it. Perry gets it. Perry spent a lot of time in a uh, major league locker room as a clubby with his dad in Texas, and he gets it. And, and that's what you need. You need guys that get it. And when you, I'm talking about a liberal arts method of playing baseball, meaning that I want our guys to be proficient at every component of the game and not just specialists. And the cool thing about it is, you know, when you're the skipper and, and you're talking about those feelings again, you could watch 50 games and watch your third base coach make so many good, aggressive, smart sense. Then that one that everything went perfect for the defense and he gets thrown out in a big situation where the Twitter mob wants to hang him. And, uh, you know, every talk radio show is going to say how bad of a third base coach he was. It's it's a good feeling, you know, because I always think about that. And I think, well, the skipper, the guys that live, the guys that live together for 162, they know how many great sends he's had. And and if you're going to have that, if you want to be great, you got to take chances. And and that's that's kind of the. The good thing about it is you appreciate and, and you can't be perfect. I think you said it right. You can't be perfect. Yeah. And I'll take my chances with a guy that that puts his neck out there and wants to be great. And once in a while, you know, it's going to burn you. But but hopefully the positive outweighs the negative. Um, I want to jump to that 08 season. You had a lot of young sure. talent there, you know, the B.J. Uptons mm-hmm. and Shields and Price. I remember I was finishing up my career and I went down to to. Uh, triple a to see if i was going to continue playing it was 2008 and i saw this young kid and i knew it was starting to the writing was on the wall for me i just was a shell of myself but i remember those few games that i was in triple a seeing if i was going to continue to play i saw longoria and i remember calling Hmm. my dad you know my dad would go well brett what are you gonna do you're gonna hang it up you're gonna keep playing i said i don't know but i saw a kid today and he's he's gonna be a stud dad this longoria guy and you know what i like about him he uses an ash bat all the kids at that time were starting to use maple i said he uses an ash bat and then the rest is history so that's my thoughts of of 2008 but uh you get to go to the world series that year you lose to a really good phillies team but that kind of that was the first time uh it was a different tampa bay after that year just take me through that year a little bit i think he had a brawl with the yankees and the yeah. Red Sox, uh, Yankees, I Pretty think, good. in spring training, Red Sox during the season. Yeah. Am I am I accurate? Right on. right on. I mean, we had to take things. You know, things aren't given. You got to take them. And we're playing. And I was like building the guys up into a frenzy in spring training. And um, we're playing the Yankees at uh, Steinbrenner that one a, a night game during spring training. And uh, late in the game, and uh, here comes Elliot Johnson around third base. Francisco Cervelli catching him. Me and Francisco got to be pretty good buds. But here comes um, here comes EJ around third, and he just pancakes Cervelli and knocks the ball, and we win the game. It wasn't the game winner because we're on the road, but it was the game winning run, and Cervelli breaks the wrist. Right after the game, um, uh, the Yankees all the writers tell me the Yankees are all upset, and I I just needed to know why. Are you upset because you thought it was a dirty play, or are you upset because you're not supposed to play that way in spring training? I needed to know that for my response. Because I've been preaching to my guys, we're going to play the same game. I don't care what the date is on the calendar. Uh, March, February 15th, March 15th, July 15th, October, we're going to play the same game. So Elliot was playing the same game. So they came in and they decided that that should not happen in the spring training game. So the moment they didn't say it was a dirty play, then it just it fed into exactly the, what I was preaching 
that we're going to play the same game regardless of date on the calendar. So, so that was perfect. And I, Francisco, of course, they didn't want him to get hurt, but it happened. And that was so big in our development. A week or so later, we're playing them at LA. And uh, uh, my boy, uh, Duncan Shelley Duncan's hit for the Yankees. And he's uh, like a hooking line drive right off Longo's glove at third base. And not far, Longo goes, runs it down, picks it up. But Shelley figures out, this is, this is my opportunity. So he turns it first and goes to second. He's out by literally 20, 25 feet, falls in Aki's hands at second base, and he goes, Shelley goes, spikes up at his, at his chest at Aki at second base. Well, here comes all the guys. I mean, Gomes, he comes in uh, from the outfield. Um, uh, Carl comes after them. Because we had some big dudes. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose at second base. And even before the game, we had a meeting. Jerry Cropper's the umpire. I had to go in the uh, umpire's room with, with Girardi and me and the umpires before a spring training game, warning us that we can't do anything. And then here it goes. And a huge fight broke out. That's the moment we got on level ground with the Yankees. So then we're playing the Red Sox. That was the other one. Red Sox, I don't know the date, but we're playing them a night game in um, Boston. And there's a double play ball hit. Um, no, no, it's a double play ball. It was a uh, Coco Chris was going to steal, right? And good throw, throws there in time, and Jason Bartlett gets in there, puts a knee down on him, tags him out, out at second base on a steal. And Coco did not like that. He started, you know, hemming and hollering and screaming and all that stuff. So later in the game, he's on first base, and there's a ground ball to JB. Aki's coming around at second to turn a double play, and he, way out of his way, you know, again, kicks him high with his shoes, and everybody got upset. Everything, all hell breaks loose. Later in the game, I'm going out in the bottom of the eighth to change a pitcher, and I'm walking out to the mound, and I'm just screaming in the Boston dugout all the way out there, just yelling, and he's there on the top rail yelling back at me. And so, you know, it just had to happen. It just had to be that way, but nobody charged. Next day, James Shields is pitching. <laughs> I didn't say anything to James. First hitter is Coco Crisp. He professionally gets him right in the right thigh. You know, he's hitting left-handed. And all hell broke loose. Here came Johnny Gomes. Here comes Carl. Here comes – we had like you know, we had a nice group, big group. Great fight. Uh, Shields. Uh, Dr. Hunt, I believe. <laughs> Great fight. You know, and it was. It was, it was awesome. And, but, again, we had to take it away from the Red Sox. From that moment on, we were on even ground, even footing, literally with the white, uh, Red Sox. So that's – that season we fought the Yankees then we became their equal we fought the Red Sox and became their equal and that's where the Rays really ascended as an organization I mean of course the whole season but uh, the fact that our players uh, didn't take anything from the you know the the AL East Giants that had to happen and it did happen and then we won some really magnificent games and magnificent games against both those teams later on that year and got ourselves to the World Series you win manager of the year that year, uh, which means in 09, you get to be the skipper for the All-Star game. First one. Sure. I can imagine, you know, I remember my first All-Star game as a player, mm-hmm. and I was really, it was different. I was like a little kid again. Like, you know, you, yep. you play your whole your your whole career or your whole life. You think, I want to get to the big leagues. You get to the big leagues. I want to be an All-Star. You get to be an All-Star. And it, and it was. I was just there mm-hmm. kind of in awe. Just, you know, looking at my locker, looking who is next to me. As a manager, I, I would think it would be equal. I mean, that's that's saying I've, I've kind of arrived here. You know, you're, you're skipping the uh, the AL uh, All-Star team. Pretty cool for you, 09? 
in St. Yeah, in St. Louis. I grew up a St. Louis fan, and there was a bunch of uh, Cardinals there. Like Gibson was there, Red Chambers was there, Lou Brock was there. I mean, uh, McCarver, all these dudes that I grew up idolizing were there on the field, so I got to see them uh, go in the locker room, uh, the, the workout day, and um, go in there, and you have to address the team, right? So you go in there, and I remember I started out by complimenting them. For, I said, you're the best players in Major League Baseball, which means you're the best players in the world <laughs> because there's no higher level, obviously, than this. And I want you to also know this is a daunting experience for me to be able to stand here and address you guys like this because, like you're suggesting, I never I never imagined that. You know, you, you couldn't even think that, but then here it is. And you got, you know, you're looking at Derek Jeter and all these dudes sitting right in front of you. Uh, God, what a, what a truly incredible, uh, you're right. It is, it is. It's a, it's a daunting moment. It's a, it's a life altering moment. It's a mind stretched moment. It's all those things, man. And we ended up winning the game four three and Carl goes over the wall, Crawford and pulls back a home run by Brad Hopp and we went four to three. Um, also within that, when you are the manager and the president happened to be the Obama, and so, you know, in the Cardinal clubhouse, I know you've been in there. I had to be the first one to greet him at the door. So here comes the president walking in, and I have to shake his hand, exchange a couple well-chosen words, and he loved my glasses. He complimented on my glasses, and then he, then he walked through the room. So, yeah, I mean, these, these are life-altering moments, and these are the kind of things that um, I don't necessarily reflect on. I mean, I haven't even thought about it until you brought it up in a long, long time. But I think this is when it's all said and done. These are the kind of things you sit back and think about and go, wow, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that, that they are. And, uh, yeah, I was just, I was thinking about that. I, I didn't plan for that, but I'm like, that's got to be a pretty cool moment, your first one. Uh, 2010, back to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. 2011, your second manager of the year. But I'm here in September 28th. Uh, I'm here, and that's a special day. You got a story for me? For, for September oh 28th. Right. What were you that night? <laughs> were you watching? Uh, I might right? have been watching. Yeah. I mean, um, well, you know, that's the night that people consider the best night in history of baseball. Almost. Um, we're playing the Yankees and the Red Sox are playing in Baltimore and uh, they have to lose. We have to win. We both have to win. Both have to lose uh, to play another day. But of course, us winning and them losing was optimal. So the game starts out horribly. Teixeira hits a bomb, grand slam, and then I think it's a three-run homer on top of that by the fourth inning. And so I'm watching the scoreboard the whole time, Boston and uh, Baltimore. You know, low scores, threat of rain, all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, I'm thinking of if this is going this bad, my first initial reaction was save our bullpen and hope that Boston loses because if we have to play tomorrow, I want to have our A bullpen rested. So that's my thought about third, fourth inning. And all of a sudden, I don't know, it was the seventh inning, whatever it was, that Longo comes up and hits his home run and gets us back in there. And then as soon as that happened, I think it was seven to three or seven to four, maybe at that time, I, I took the wraps off the bullpen. I said, here we go. So I started using our regular guys and then here comes another Longo home run. And then before you know it, um, uh, it ended up being what, eight to seven. I think we were down by a point, something like that, uh, going into the ninth inning. And um, mm-hmm. all right. We have, uh, they have Wade pitching. I think it was Wade, Corey Wade, really good reverse flick guy. Right-handed was really good on lefties. And I had set up that I was going to try to save Danny Johnson for somebody to be on base. I was going to originally use Sammy Fowles as the hitter. 
but it gets down to two outs and nobody on and said, screw it. DJ, DJ's had one of the biggest home runs in the history of the Rays against Papelbon a couple years prior to that. So we picked DJ back up and, uh, here it goes. I said to Davey, I said, let's just go with uh, DJ regardless. Um, so here it comes. Here he comes, and um, he works his typical good at bat. He's, he's a pretty patient hitter. Gets the two strikes, and all of a sudden he just does that one-handed flick thing, and you know, you're know you in the same side dugout, and you don't know fair or foul, and all of a sudden that hits that fair pole, man, and we are tied up. And uh, look up at the scoreboard in the Red Sox, and uh, the Orioles are tied up, and I don't know if the rain delay had occurred yet, but they, they did have that threat of rain. So here we go. We're going into extra innings, and you knew the Yankees uh, were already clinched. They, they were in where they needed to be in. So they're not using Rivera and the rest of the boys. They're using the other part of the, their bullpen, which Scotty Proctor was a big – I was a big fan of Scotty. And anyway, they bring him out there, and they just had leave. They just were living with it. You know, they, they weren't going to match it up. And he kept pitching. And then I'm standing there, and I'm a scoreboard watcher, and all of a sudden, I swear, that little auxiliary board just clicks. And it clicks with 3-2 Baltimore, or the Red Sox. And whoa. And, and then within moments, uh, here comes the wind up the pitch, line drive in the left field corner where we had just cut out that outfield fence to make it a little bit lower. The, the intent was to have Carl Crawford make some spectacular catches, but the, the actual... Uh, purpose was for Longo to hit a line drive home run to clinch uh, getting us into the playoffs. All in one night, man. I mean, you talk about, you go to the ballpark, you have no clue, you know, what's going to happen the next day. Then all of a sudden you're getting your brain speed out. You go, damn, we got to just figure out how to, to get to the next day. And then all of a sudden you get a walk-off home run. One of, one of the biggest, you know, you can talk about Bobby Thompson. That was uh, different with the, uh, the Giants and the Dodgers back in the day. But this rivals that. There's no question. Uh, that one has a little bit more romanticized, but this one's the same thing, man. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you're in the playoffs because of this crazy game on the last game of the season. And I think also, you can look this up, I think we were nine and a half out on September 1st, something like that. Uh, we were way out. Uh, and then nobody, oh, nobody ever really believes they can do it nine and a half out on September 1, but we did. Yeah, a lot of guys will say, "Hey, we're still in it. We're still grinding." You, not too many people believe that with the math. <laughs> with the math, it, it usually right, exactly. doesn't happen. I mean, it's, and, and we lost a doubleheader, I think, during that time at, at Yankee Stadium. One, one of those games was a double dip makeup game. We lose both, man. I remember walking in the clubhouse afterwards and just complimenting them on their their effort. Let's stay with it. This isn't over yet. So forth and so on. Just like you're saying, and they came through. Pretty cool. Uh, fast forward to 2014 and, and Friedman, who's been you, with you the whole time. I think he goes to the Dodgers. Right. And uh, how, how did that tenure come to an end in, in uh, Tampa Bay? And, and you're about to to go off on another one, you know, next the next episode with the yeah. Cubs in 2015. How'd you get there? Well, what happened was, Andrew, yeah, I was, I was actually where I'm at right now, Pennsylvania. I was up here for a drove my RV up here to do a golf tournament in October. It was, yes, October. And I'm uh, parked at my cousin's house and uh, outside of her house and, and right, right near my, my, my mom's pad. And I uh, got a phone call from Andrew. And he's telling me that he's considering uh, leaving to go to the Dodgers. And I was excited for him. I said, man, that'd be great. Uh, you go out there, you got a little bit more resources. Uh, I'm happy for you, blah, 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 whatever. But it, he wasn't sure he was going to do it. And then um, I said, okay. Let me know. 
So um, I'm driving back. I'm going through Virginia, and I get a call from Andrew that he is going to go to the Dodgers. And I couldn't have been happier for him. Andrew and I are really, still to this day, really good friends. We had a great time together. We grew up together there. And uh, I'll tell you the best way I could describe our friendship is we had some really healthy arguments, man. Uh, you know, and I would, uh, we would battle back and forth. And uh, I know he learned from me, and I definitely learned from him too. And I think it was great. I really, Andrew's one of my favorites. Anyway, so he's leaving. And then he said that uh, Matt Silverman's going to be calling you soon, and they're going to go over some things, whatever. I said, okay, cool. So Maddie calls me up, and, and I didn't even realize this at the time. There was a clause in my contract that if uh, either Andrew or Matt had left, that I have an opportunity to be a two-week free agent. And I didn't know that. And then Matthew explains that to me. And then I'm pulled over at Jellystone RV Park, uh, a little bit south of Richmond, Virginia, and I'm looking over some of the paperwork and realize I got two weeks to explore. And uh, so that's, that's what opened it up. By Andrew leaving, that, that kicked the clause into our contract, my contract, that permitted me to be uh, possibly go somewhere else. And so uh, played that all the way through. And eventually, as you know, uh, when I was able to talk to people, ended up talking with uh, the Cubs, with um, Theo and Jed, uh, Jay and I, my wife and I had driven our other RV from, um, we traded that uh, first one into another one and we were driving up, uh, we were driving out West. We were, uh, <clears throat> going from Tampa, Florida to Arizona and could go visit the kids and just go for a drive. And I'm in Pensacola, near Pensacola, Navarre beach. And we pulled over a really cool spot. And, um, Ted and Theo flew down to visit with me there. So they, we met up, they had a rental car, they flew into Pensacola, came to the bar, had my RV backed up to the to a little beach there, it was really cool, threw out some uh, uh, chairs on the beach, and grabbed a couple 16-ounce Miller Lite, you know, the, the aluminum cans with the big wide mouths, I love those, and we sat there and just talked <laughs> about, you know, philosophically, how's this going to work, and, you know, what, is, what do you think, what do we think, and so that's how it began. And then we went out for some Chinese food after that. And then they flew back and then they get back in the RV and there's other teams I was talking to at the time. I talked to Terry Ryan of the twins and I loved Terry Ryan, man, did I enjoy that conversation, but we kept driving Beaumont. And then we got to somewhere right outside of San Antonio going to, uh, near the, where the junction boys are. And all of a sudden my agent, Alan Hero calls and tells me that, uh, the Cubs have made an offer. And this is the offer. I said, you gotta be kidding me. You know, so it was, it was, it, they made you an offer you couldn't refuse, obviously. And um, so that's where I knew, uh, right there. I was driving through Texas on my way to Arizona to see the kids. And uh, that's how it all worked out. So Andrew leaving, kicked it in gear. I could not have been happier for him. And obviously it was a, a good, a good break for me. And, uh, you know, I loved the raise, wanted to stay there. Things just didn't work out. But from a uh, uh, career kind of a move, and, and quite frankly, financially successful for my family. It couldn't have worked out better. 2015 manager of the year. Again, this is your third one. Uh, you go 97 and 65. You had a hell of a team yeah. getting to that 2016 team. And I'll tell you, I, I was one of the naysayers and it wasn't because of, <laughs> it wasn't because of you, Joe, and it wasn't because of the talent you had on that field, but people would ask me all the time, what do you think of the Cubs? You know, cause it was a big, it was a huge story that, that year. It was the curse. It was everything I said till the day I die, guys, the Cubs cannot win the world series. Well, why Brett? Why? Because 
Even though they have lights now, they play too many day games. Our schedules, right. we as big league players, were wired one way. You can't just throw four day games in the middle of our season when everybody else plays five night games. And I said, therefore, in the long haul, over the course of 162, that's why the Cubs, will. once they get there, they'll never win the World Series. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Tell me well, about no, you're that. You're right two- about your evaluation. You're, you're absolutely right. Say my micro and my macro. They didn't add up. Well, you're right, because I thought the same thing. And when I got in there, I wanted to make sure they all knew that we got to back off on, on, on work on, uh, uh, prior to day games. There's got to be a different schedule. I mean, everybody, when the season's in progress, to me, if you're an everyday player, you, you, whatever your routine is, it does not have to include hitting on the field every day. It does not have to include taking 50 ground balls every day. Everybody has to have a different routine based on what they're able to do What's, what's necessary for them to get ready to play that night. It's not just the one size fits all. And that's, that's part of the, the problem I have with the way things are done a little bit now, uh, because when you're sitting upstairs and you're part of a front office sometimes, and you look down on the field, you need to see this neat little drill going on in order to think that your, your players care and your coaches are doing their job. Not true. The, the most important thing to do or have done on a daily basis to make sure that your players are mentally and physically ready to play the game and their body and mind are rested also. Then you're going to get the performance you're looking for. So for me with the Cubs, we cannot hit on the field prior to day games. That would only be in a special circumstances and especially when it got hot. I, I was good with cage work. I was good with showing up later. I was good with whatever it took to make sure that your mind and body we're fresh and healthy the moment that game started. And I still believe that. I mean, as we got there longer, um, you know, from the front office to the field, it got, they, they started sending down some more uh, edicts. They wanted more work done on the field because we weren't winning a championship every year, which was absolutely wrong. I mean, you have to, you have to temper everything. You have to understand who your, who your guys are. You know everybody and what they, they need on a daily basis to get ready to play. So the one-size-fits-all theory based on what looks good from sitting up in the press box to me is ridiculous. Uh, Season in progress. Players need to do less to become more. I love that analogy. It's so true. It's so true. There is not even close to a one-size-fits-all. I remember... I remember 99, uh, and that was the year Chipper Jones won the the MVP. And I was in Atlanta Mm -hmm. on that team. And I remember there were some people griping because Chipper, for whatever reason, that year, he'd get to the ballpark about two o'clock. He'd get in his skivvies. He'd sit there. He'd play cards all the way up Mm -hmm. till about a half hour before game time. He'd go into the cage. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of who the hitting coach was. Oh, I think it was Don Baylor. They do their routine. He'd throw a few Mm -hmm. balls into the side of the cage, get his arm loose. He'd walk onto the field for the first pitch. (laughs) And I just thought to myself, and he's playing. I mean, he's carrying us. And I remember right. hearing some griping, and I said, "Let me tell you one thing. I'll tell you what. As long as Chipper keeps doing what Chipper's doing right now, he can do whatever the hell he wants to do." <laughs> I said, right. "You right. just bring right. as long as you bring it from seven to ten. I could care less what you do. This isn't a, a land of everybody's equal. It's like no, you're hitting two thirty six, and and you're striking out at a forty percent clip. You might want to get there and stretch with the rest of the team. You're winning MVPs. You do whatever you want to do, and so so I love that you're now. You know, not that your analogy was that severe, but mm-hmm. I was just given a, a more severe. It, it just is. It's not one size fits all. It's not. This isn't. 
you know, pony ball. This is the big leagues with the greatest players in the world and and need to be treated as such to to a certain degree. And, and I think guys earn certain things. Guys, guys earn mm-hmm. the respect and earn the uh the right to to make the right decisions for them and and i think as a skipper you see it all the time you know the guys that you that you respect not only as men but as ball players and the ability to evaluate oneself well yeah like you're talking to talking about chicago a very different situation you're absolutely right they did not win for so many years because those guys are worn out we even we would go home uh during the course of those five years that I was there. And sometimes you might play an entire homestand day games and it's hot, brother. It is hot. And you're playing 10 in a row at home all day. And I, it, it has to take, uh, it's so it has to have an impact unless you do something to mitigate it. And to me, that was the way to do it. How about last year? You know how many times show a hit took BP on the field last year? How about zero? zero. Yeah. How about zero? And he did pretty good. So, I mean, I he did okay. He did okay. I'm, yeah. I'm going to break yeah, him down yeah. for you in a minute. Yeah, he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's everybody's different. And, um, you know, for me, if we have a, okay, if you have a, a team defense, yeah, everybody, everybody's got to be out there at the same time, team defense or base running. And then you have early work. Sometimes guys come on, want to come out and butt or work on uh, a specific skill. Absolutely different. But to be out there in, in mass all the time on your feet, just going through a routine or rote routine because somebody thinks it's the right thing to do compared to somebody. One of the hardest things to do in all the sport, I think maybe the hardest is to be an everyday major league baseball player. That might be the hardest thing like over football, over basketball, over hockey. If you are an everyday major league baseball player, and if you answer the bell like Cal did, or just even anything close, if you, if you answer the bell 150 out of 162 annually, my goodness, that is not easy to do. And, and a big part of that that people don't understand is the mental, the mental. So when you get beat up, when you stink and you're just, you just hate yourself and you got to go out there and just fight through it. People have no idea what that's like. No idea. So you've got to be aware of all of that and you've got to take all that into consideration. And it is not one size fits all. And you cannot, for those that are in love with choreography, that it all looks cool from up top. That's not the answer. A lot of great players on this on that team, but I wanted to ask you about one guy in particular because he was a mm-hmm. big part of of your your time in in Tampa, and then a huge part of that Cubs team, and that's mm-hmm. uh, Zobrist. How how yeah. key was he? What kind of role did he play? Because he he was a guy Zobrist uh, during the end of my career. He he was starting his career. I remember always looking at him like, yeah, Zobrist. He's you know he's an okay player, whatever. And then as he as as I watched him in Tampa, as I watched him with the Cubs, I he really grew on me. I'm like, this guy's a real integral, special player. It, you know, it's not gonna he's not gonna be that bona fide, you know, Tatis or Acuna of today's today's game. Mm-hmm. But what a contributor. Speak to him a little bit. Yeah, did you ever see him have a bat at bat? This so, guy no. used to be going horribly and He'd still get on base twice that night somehow because yep. his eye and his, he would take his walks. He'd accept his walks. He would do – he Zoe's the guy that does anything he possibly can to help you win on a nightly basis. That's who Zoe is. Um, and the numbers just – they will show up at the end uh, because he doesn't suck up so many at-bats, meaning that he, he just has to – he's not just out there hunting hits. He's out there hunting getting on base. And because of that, um, he could really fight through some actual slumps where the ball's not coming off 
the bat hot and still uh, still keep his head above water until he gets it rolling again. Um, that's just uh, that's just what he is. I mean, the big thing with Zoe was that I think when we made him into the super utility player that he became, um, he was a shortstop when we got him from Houston, and that wasn't going to work. It just didn't seem like it was going to work. And then we put him at second base, and that was fine. But I think he's – to me, his best position was the outfield. I liked him in right field the best. That was my favorite place to play Zoe. I thought he was – Technically, mechanically, almost the perfect outfield. His feet were so good. His routes were so good. His attention to detail was so good. Um, you know, in the infield, his feet were a little choppy sometimes. I was all, listen, he did a nice job. Don't get me wrong. But in the outfield, everything just seemed to fit. Uh, at bats, he was always a better left-handed hitter, but he'd give you some good times at right on the right side. Right side, more choppy, more swing down on the ball. Left side, the ball being the air more. Uh, but accepting his walks, putting the ball in the gap, definitely had some pop, but always had a dramatic uh, uh, flair for the dramatic, would really do some good things in big moments. And he was always, always there. The guy's always there, level-headed, never, God, he was, he, he just never uh, showed his bad side, man. He was always there for the team. And uh, quickly, we sent him up and down a couple times in, what, 2006 or seven, seven. He'd come in my office, he'd sit down there, and Andrew would be sitting there, hey, guys, thanks for the opportunity. I just want you to know I want to be part of this. This team's going to really win big some, at, at some point or someday. And all I, wanted, I want you to understand, I just want to be part of that. I will stay ready. I'll do whatever you guys need me to do in AAA. Whenever you need me, I'll be back up here, and I'll be ready to play and contribute because we are going to win. That's what he would say on that exit meeting. He seemed like that type of guy. Like I said, over time, I became a big I, I became a per, big fan of his. And I really stay away from being a fan of anybody. I'm a fan of the game. Mm-hmm. But Zobrist mm-hmm. over the years, just seeing him, you know, for a few years in postseason, mm-hmm. I said, this guy is a really good player. And that just stood out to me. That's why, you know, there were so many good players on that team. But that was the mm-hmm. interesting one. I wanted to hear from you on that. Uh, just had Tom Verducci on the, on the show, and he mm-hmm. wrote a book about that year. I just want to get your take. I couldn't imagine, you know, I, I still think it's a big Bears, Bears city, a big Chicago Bulls city, but obviously a huge Cubs. And they've been waiting for this forever. I remember the night you guys won and I'm sitting there going, that's unbelievable. First of all, I got to go eat crow to the people I'm telling that, that the Cubs can't win. <laughs> and I'm and I'm holding on, you know, I'm holding on to dear life because I've been saying it the whole time. And you guys won. And I'm like, wow. That's pretty awesome right yeah. there. I remember it. But that had to be – that city waiting that long, it had to be an unbelievable ending and a parade and all that. How, how was it? Yeah, it's all of that. I mean, we all went there with that idea in mind. I mean, I really wanted to be part of uh, that opportunity, and then it came to fruition. We had a bunch of players that felt the same way. There's a lot of guys that wanted to be there to be on that first uh, World Series team since 1908. So there's a lot of uh, common commonality, common goals, common, common, common everything, man. This is a great group of guys, and I was fortunate. The, the ground ball, the, the chopper to third, slipping a little bit, throwing the first. I was really concerned when I saw the slip, uh, but then I looked over and it hits like it's going to hit uh, Riz right in the right, right in the mouth. It was perfect. And then the first thing I thought, I swear, and I'm I'm very cognizant of my because I've been through some pretty good moments. The first thing I thought in that moment was. 108 years. That was the first thing I thought. And then after that, you think of your mom, your dad, your, your wife, your kids, everybody else, but it was 108. And then you just rush out there 
And it's like, wow, did, did this really happen? It's just, it's, I, I have a, a T-shirt that may all your surrealisms come true. That is a surrealistic moment that came true right there. And uh, to be a member of that, a part of that, and everybody says the same thing. They can never take it away from you. Of course they can't. But that one there, is, you know, out of the last uh, 100 years or so in the United States, that's about as pertinent as it gets regarding uh, uh, a franchise, a city, a fan base, however you want to describe it, having to wait and then eventually coming out the other side. The parade, I knew we could have a parade. I didn't know that, whatever the, an Uber parade, a mag, uh, magnificent mega parade. I mean, it was, it was absurd. I mean, we, we eventually get down to Grant Park and I get off the bus and I'm walking up there by Billy Williams and I'm going up the ramp and we get to the stage and I get to the stage and I look out there and it was so crazy because I had a talk too. you know, you got to look like a million people, but unbelievably calm about it. And all I could think about was Woodstock. I thought this is how Richie Havens started Woodstock in 1969. And I get to feel the same opportunity by standing out here right now. And I called it Cubstock 2016. It was, it was just a mass of humanity and everybody was there for obviously the same reason and uh, insanity, uh, but it was, it was controlled. It was well done. People were awesome. But I've, I've, nobody's ever seen anything like that. We'll never see it again. Well, now you created another monster because now they expect you to win. <laughs> the 108's right. over. And I, right, exactly. That's awesome. I got, I, got Rizzo, I got Rizzo coming on the program next week. Anything I should ask him? Uh, ask, uh, love, ask, let's see, Riz. He and, I get, he and I are really tight, actually. Anthony, I call him Anthony's because I always okay. thought he should make a, his first name plural, Anthony's. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll introduce him as Anthony's. Anthony's, yeah, just, a, Anthony's <laughs> he'll he'll know where it come I, from. Yes. Yeah, Anthony's Rizzo. Go with that, and he'll he'll know exactly where it came from. Uh, you know, Riz and I, man, um, we just he used to come in the office. We would talk all the time, and I'm really tight with his parents. Also, um, dang, Anthony's is uh, you know I'll tell you one thing about Anthony that I think you're aware of. Uh, research all of his charitable work. This guy, when we go to a city on the first day, and a lot of times he'd end up in a hospital, check, talking to the kids. And he did it like, you know, without any uh, fanfare, he would just go do it. This guy overcame a lot. And his foundation, and what he does with this foundation to me is the Rizzo Family Foundation is outstanding. Um, you know, it's, I'm really proud of him for that. He's got a great way about him. He's a baseball player. He enjoys the game. He plays the game. He doesn't, you know, he get upset with himself and sometimes he loses his mind like we all do. But for the most part, he has a joy about the day that I really, he's kind of like a kid. And uh, he and I got to be really tight. And I do miss him. I do miss him. Uh, he was, uh, he's that good of a talent. He's big in, in a big moment. He loves the big moment too. But I think the best thing he's ever done is uh, the Rizzo Family Foundation. Yeah, very cool. When I told, uh <laughs> My brother, I was having him on. He he concurred what you, what you just he reiterated yeah. what what you just said about. Yeah. It. He said Brett, really good guy, really good guy. And Aaron, you know, he doesn't know him like you. He's only had him yeah. known him for yeah. a little bit, but but uh, definitely reiterated everything you said. Uh, Two thousand twenty, you're coming back home. All those years in that Angels organization, you're back. Uh, wow, you mentioned it. I'm telling you. Joe, I, I, I watched you guys this year and I just watched Otani and what he did. 
And I was blown away. And and I was laughing because I, you know, I, I would do a show and they'd ask me, who's the MVP? I said, why are you even asking me that question? I said, do you right. realize what this gentleman Otani is doing right now? I said, you can't even fathom. No one's ever seen it. We may never see it again to not only be leading the league in homers, but towing the, you know, I don't know what you did. You gave him a little more break, but he was essentially going to the rubber every fifth or sixth day. I said, Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody understands this game and how hard it is as an offensive player, what we need to do to prepare for each and every game. But while we're doing that, those guys in the rotation are off doing their band work and doing their work to get ready for that fifth day. And they got their bullpen, you know, two days out. I said to do both at the highest level, at the level he's doing it. I said, if he was if he was hitting 250 with 20 homers and had a four and a half ERA, but was going out there every fifth day, he's the MVP for me right there. But not only that, Mm -hmm. he's. He's doing it on both sides of the ball at an all-star level. It's not even a question, and I don't care how good somebody of a year somebody had. With Otani's year this year, unbelievable. Uh, you saw it up close. Am I understating well, just, it? <laughs> no, you just said – I mean, it sounds like, like you just sound like me. I've said almost exactly what you just said, almost verbatim exactly what you just said. When people ask me that question, I said, really? You think there's any kind of competition? Do you realize – how difficult it is to do what he's doing and, and then, and then how well he's doing it. Um, the fact that this guy will pitch and strike out 10 or 11 guys on a, on a Sunday and then hit a home run on a Monday night. How sore is your body after throwing that many pitches? How sore is your right side of your body down to your butt cheek just from, from, from throwing a hundred, 110 pitches. And then you go out there and hit a homer. You want to steal bases? Oh, that that, he, that was like that, that was like on top of it all. He's stealing bags. Yeah. Well, he wanted to go. I mean, there's times he, he, he and I I let him go, but there's times I you know it was just the matchup wasn't good. The the pitcher was too quick, or the arm was uh, the combination of the pitcher and the catcher didn't make any sense. That's when I would only put the hold on him. But if it made sense at all, go ahead because this guy really believes. This is a sincere belief. It's not. He's not because uh, this is the most humble person you ever met. Whatever he does on offense, as when he's pitching, he's there to help the team win. It's not about personal numbers or doing something nobody else has done. He knows he's a good hitter, and he knows when he pitches. If he didn't hit, there's a big bat missing out of our lineup that could possibly preclude us from winning. So he wants to do both because he knows he's that important to the offense. With all humility, he knows he's that important to the offense. This is a different cat. This guy um, has an incredible, incredible joy for the game. A, he, and I've compared him to Kyle Ripken Jr. Because I thought the two things about Rip that, that stood out to me more than anything was his joy for the game and the competitive nature that he had. Those were the two things that I thought that, that set this guy apart. And I've seen the same thing with Shohei. Shohei is about competition and joy for the day. He loves doing this. God, it's, it's all he does. It's all he thinks about. So that's, that's the thing about this fellow. Now, you said it too. You might never see it again. I'm, you know, of course you want to see it again next year and the year after, maybe even more. But you don't know that. This could be the, the unicorn year that nobody ever sees again. He absolutely should be unanimous. There should be no – anybody that dissents in the vote really has no understanding of what our game is like to do it every day and the athleticism and the, the pure physical uh, being that he is to be able to do that and don't forget the mental side, man. 
my God, that's where you really get tired when the brain blows up. That's what really causes fatigue. He was able to deal with that too. You know, the coolest part for me, and I, as a fan, I was watching him, you know, throughout the entire year and he starts out and I'm just thinking, man, I, I bet Joe wants to wrap that man in bubble wrap and just have somebody follow him mm. around because it's so tough not to, to have one of those nagging injuries when you're doing both. But, right. you know, he starts off pretty good. And I'm like, ah, can you keep this up? Now we're getting to the all-star break and it's just, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. At this point for me, it already won the MVP. And then mm-hmm. as the season went on, you could tell when I watched him, the look in his eye, when he'd steal second base, it's almost like he was starting to have an appreciation because he knew how special of a year and it happened to be him going through it. I think he the, the enormity of it was starting to hit him like, wow. And he appreciated it like, this has never happened before. And I'm going to enjoy this because who knows if it'll ever, it'll ever happen again. He, I remember him stealing home on that double steal. And I'm going, and that's just, you know, that's just another one for, for the record books. Like how perfect and how cool of a year from an individual standpoint could one have I, I don't think you can have a, a cooler one but I noticed that I said this guy knows what he's doing he knows how special oh, yeah. the year he's having I'm not saying from an arrogant uh, standpoint right. I'm saying exactly. he's, right. he was just well aware by the end of the year like this is off the charts ridiculous what I'm doing right now I know it but I'm doing it with a smile on my face and I thought it was a really cool human touch to it absolutely this guy um well, first of all, he signed up to do this, right? He signed up to come here and do both things. So he needed the opportunity to do both things and give Perry a lot of credit there because Perry and I had a conversation last spring training because I needed to know from him how he viewed this um, in order to, to manage this all the way through because we needed to be on the same page. And we talked about it. We were exactly on the same page. You just can't worry about injury. The moment you start worrying about injury, sure enough, that's when somebody's going to get hurt. So we, we, we put that in our back pocket. There was no limitations there was, there was no structure to it whatsoever. Just go be a baseball player. And that's exactly what he did. Um, understand about Shohei. Let me, I mean, you can see, you see the hitting, but as a pitcher, um, I don't know that I've been around some really good pitchers. This guy knows exactly what he's doing on every pitch. Exactly. Um, and he's, he's very similar in a lot of ways to Darvish because I had you also meaning that um, they have so many different tools in their toolbox. They know which ones to use on a specific day and against a specific hitter. Because if one is not working, that goes, that goes back in the toolbox. Let me, let me try something else. And then he'll keep going until he finds that one thing that the field is there for that day. And then here we go. And then it becomes an absolute dynamic pitch. And everything sets up off of that. He'll throw it in any count. And... <laughs> And if he doesn't want to pitch to somebody, he doesn't, but he'll just be missing to the point where he might get the guy out because the guy's just eager and wants to put the ball in play. He knows everything, everything he's doing. This guy's got incredible feel for the game uh, as a pitcher, as a hitter. You know, he, I, I thought he pretty much wall to wall it last year. He, his numbers only came down because everybody was hurt. He had no protection whatsoever. I mean, with Mikey gone and Rendon gone, you know, I tried to put Jared up there, Walsh, and I did for a while. Then he got hurt. And then, uh, so he went naked for, a, a, I don't even know how many at-bats he went naked this year. So when people talk about his numbers fell off at the end, then you're not really understanding what's going on. He was, he was left unprotected for a while there and still battled through it. He was not getting pitched at the same. Why would you? The lineup comes over. Why would you? 
pitch to this guy. And especially when you're going against playoff contending teams, they're not going to get beat by him. So he, that makes it even more impressive what he did. So that's it. This guy's an artist. He's out there with a brush in his hand all the time. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he, he, he kind of knows he's the best guy out there. He does. And, uh, Oh, he definitely knows. He definitely, he definitely knows. Yeah. 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 He does it in a humble way, but I'm telling you, you're right. Um, a lot of guys under you became big league managers. Shelton, David Martinez, Bodelli, mm-hmm. Montoya. Uh, it's a pretty good list. They go yeah, on to be. One of the, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I want to hear about Hazelton Integration Project. Okay. Okay. Let me see if I can break it down for you. Um, the Hazelton Integration Project, known as HIP. We started um, right around the year 2010, 2011. It began because Jay and I, my wife and I, came back for Christmas. I think it was 9 or 10 that we came back for Christmas. And I'm driving in from the east side of town up through Jim Thorpe, uh, Beaver Meadows, and coming in the Heights area. And I'm driving in town. It looks just dark. It looks dark. The streetlights are really dull. Uh, you look at the sidewalks themselves, and they were broken up. They were bad. You walk down, and you could sprain an ankle. Uh, everything was awful and dark and tense and it was tense because there's a large immigration um, of uh, Hispanics, Dominicans primarily into the city, ah, right around 2005, six, whatever. And there, there was a spike in crime a bit. And uh, because of that, the locals, the people that had been here a while uh, were really down on the Latino population and they were really trying to separate themselves and uh, there was a big stir, both sides. I mean, the locals were suspicious of the Hispanics, Hispanics suspicious of the locals, and it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And here I am, I'm coming into town, and this, like I've already said, is the best place in the world to grow up. I'm in baseball. My first roommate was Dickie Thon. Richard and I still, Richard just texted me yesterday. Uh, I have this strong affinity for Hispanic people, Hispanic, Hispanic population. I really love Latinos, man. They're among my favorites. Now, digressing, this city was made up of immigrants. This, I am Polish-Italian. When this city was made up, and I was a kid growing up in the 50s and 60s, different parts of town were little pockets, like there was the Italian section, the Polish section, the Slovakian section, the Irish section. There was a Jewish section. There was all these different sections of town, right? And you were considered a minority if the Polak went into the Italian section or Italian went into the Irish. And a lot of times there was a lot in the Germans, and there was a lot of uh, the same kind of dialogue. The kids are dirty. They don't speak the language. Keep them away. They're causing trouble. All these different, the, the, the dialogue was exactly the same when it came to my, my parents and my grandparents and all my aunts and uncles, everybody that came in. When they showed up, they were hearing the same thing that these people are hearing in 25, 6, 7, 8, 10. Same thing. Not, in, not even a little bit different, exactly the same. And my point was, you have a chance to really, we always romanticize when we hear stories from parents and grandparents. We always romanticize that. Boy, I wish I lived back then. I wish I'd seen that for myself. Well, you kind of got the opportunity right now to see exactly what it was like with the group that has moved into our city. They came here for a better way of life. They came here for education, for their kids, for a job, uh, just, just for a part of the American dream. That's why they're here. And you're pushing them away. You're pushing them away the same way a group tried to push away your parents and your grandparents 50, 75, 100 years ago. 
So I attacked it from that angle. And we got together, and uh, we, me, my wife and I, and my cousins back here, and we uh, did some uh, fundraising. We got some money. We bought a parochial school, Most Precious Blood, which is now the Hazleton One Community Center, which is the House of the Hazleton Integration Project, where we were there for everybody. We're not there just for Hispanics, but primarily the Hispanic population, show, population has shown up. We have not, from the beginning, we've never advertised it's just an Hispanic. I wanted everybody. I want this to be an integrated place. I want more uh, white kids and white parents showing up. Absolutely. Or Anglos, whatever you want to say. Um, but it's, it's not, we have, but not to the extent I'd like to see it. So now we have after school programs, we have athletic programs, we have culinary programs, we have boxing programs. The one I wanted is debate club. Uh, we have won national awards. We have now have replaced eight kids. I think replacing eight kids annually to an honors, um, uh, <clears throat> an honors program at Bloomsburg University, which is like 26 miles from here, because Hazleton, with all this Hispanic population, is zero, from what I understand, zero Hispanic school teachers. And the excuse is that there's no Hispanic applicants. So we're going to give them, their own, we're going to give them applicants. We're, we're growing them right down the street at Bloomsburg University. And really, Julie, this lady, uh, this, she's the honors program uh, from Bloomsburg. She's running this whole thing. It's so special. So now we're going to get, we're going to supply Hispanic teachers to our own school district back here because we're, they're growing up at the center, they're going to bloom and they're coming back and they're going to, going to participate in the city. We've won national awards. We just got a federal grant of over a million bucks to help uh, infrastructure and programs within our, our uh, uh, school and program. I still raise money. We were doing try not to suck golf tournaments. We have try not to suck in the Valley. That's here. Try not to suck at the beach, which we did uh, last summer. We're going to do Try Not to Suck in the Desert uh, in spring training this year to raise money. I've also had uh, fireside chats with Cal Ripken, and I've had uh, guys like Joe Namath have come into town, and Mike Ditka's come into town, and my boy Tommy Listella has been here, and David Ross has been here, and we just raised money in very different creative ways. So we're here to uh, bring the city together. We're here to bring cultures together. We're here to do uh, help eliminate the misunderstandings and help people understand that these folks are here to save our city. And that was my big thing. These are here. These folks are going to save Hazleton and they have the sports programs have really blossomed. Our football team just lost the other night to uh, Delaware Valley, which is a really a powerhouse six A. And we, we went deep into the playoffs again this year. And there's a, such a diverse group now on our football team. It used to just be a bunch of little Italians and Pollocks running around. Now it's everybody. Uh, it, it's, it's great. It's great. So if you look it up online, HazeltonIntegrationProject.com, or no, .org, excuse me, .org, you will get uh, a full rundown. It's a great website. It'll give you, if you want to contribute, you can. Um, it's wonderful. And we, our last point, we would want, we wanted to create a template that we could help other little hamlets throughout Northeastern Pennsylvania do the same thing if they chose to. And so we're still there to serve uh, as an example and help others. Uh, and we were, we were meeting with somebody tomorrow, a uh, fellow that got to know, Mr. Tony Savage, who actually runs this uh, country club that does similar things down in Allentown. We're coming together tomorrow to see if we could exchange some ideas. So that's a quick rundown. Very cool. And, and not to uh, keep you too long, but uh, tell me about thanks, Miss, about feeding the yeah, kids thanks, at uh, yeah. homeless kids at Christmas. Yeah, thanks, Miss, is something that uh, that's part of the uh, – Respect90.org, that's our, that's our foundation. Respect90 is a distance from home plate to first base. And 
which if you think about it, that means respect begins at home. So that's our foundation. And the first thing we did with the foundation was that thanks, miss. But um, I, when I was uh, bench coaching out there, I used to drive my bike in California between sunset beach down to Huntington, Huntington beach, and sometimes down to Newport and back. That's a pretty good ride with the wind, but I would go there and I was past so many homeless people. God, he used to really upset me. Uh, but there were times I used to take a bunch of stuff, put it in my trunk, go out there at sunset, open up the trunk. Dudes would walk by our ladies and I would stop and I would just give them stuff. And I thought that, uh, at some point in my life, if I become a major league manager, I'll have a larger soapbox to stand on. So it happened. It happened. And then, uh, we started the thanks list program. We started feeding people started in Tampa Bay, one meal, a lunch at St. Vincent de Paul. And from that we have served Salvation Armies up and down the West coast of Florida. We have served here in Hazleton. We served in Chicago. We actually done one already in Orange County. Um, uh, last right before the pandemic, I was able to get that done. And now we're considering getting something done in Arizona, wherever, wherever we're located, wherever the boots are on the ground, we try to get involved in the community. So uh, for me, it is, it's everything uh, revolves around the kitchen table. That's how I grew up. And these people are in need. And you chose thanks was to indicate these folks need our help on any day and not just on holidays. So I went with any day between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I really encourage volunteerism because if you go to any of these shelters, and I've been to a lot of them now, uh, the volunteers really blow me away. They blow me away, man. They are there every day to do all this kind of menial work uh, with nothing but love in their heart, and they're there because obviously they want to be there. And that, that's really what makes a lot of this system work are the, are the uh, volunteers. And those that are there every day because they want to be there, uh, my God, you talk about a calling. So I've, I've been really fortunate to to get involved uh, Metropolitan Ministries and, and Tampa, as an example, tremendous. They, they'll take people, families off the street, they give them a place to live, they find them a job, people start saving their money because they have a free place to stay, and then eventually they give up enough, uh, a little bit of savings, they, they, then they turn them back out and the people get back on their feet on their own. Uh, and the Salvation Army's doing the same thing. Veterans is another one. Man, the, the veterans, that, that, that really bothers me when you have to when vets meet the destitute situations that they do, for me, that should never happen. I mean, if, if anybody has ever fought for our country and never has to pay or worry about their next paying job or a place to live, that, that to me makes zero sense for somebody that's, that's gone and put the uniform on and actually has fought for us. That, I would just start right there. If I was president, that'd be the first thing I'd do. I'd make sure that the veterans are taken care of. So anyway, we're, we're involved with all this different stuff. Um, it continues to grow. Um, my wife, Jay is great. Uh, she helps a ton and Rick Vaughn runs our foundation. RV used to be the uh, media head media guy with the Tampa Bay Rays when I was there. He does a wonderful job. And my cousin, Bob and Elaine up here. So I could go on and on. It's, it's all encompassing. It's a big umbrella and, uh, we're very proud of it. Well, Joe Madden, this was, this was a lot of fun. I knew it was going to be fun, but it, 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 uh, exceeded my expectations. Obviously, a lot more to you than, than just being a, a big league manager. And, and you do that very well. Uh, you're doing a lot for a lot of people out there. Uh, once again, it's Hazelton Integration Project.org and respect90.org are the websites. Um, what we do each and every Boone podcast is at the end, we kick it back to Dan the voice of the podcast for a question from the fans dan gentlemen mr madden how are you sir good brother good how you doing man i'm doing well this one comes from eric in wrigleyville and he wants to know this 
how did the Cubs ever let you go? And do you feel like you have more freedom in Los Angeles than you did in Chicago? Well, when we first started out, there was a lot of freedom there in Chicago. It got a little bit different as we got towards the end, uh, just being honest with you. Uh, it was great, though. I mean, uh, Theo and I and Jed, we did a we had a wonderful run together. The players there, I mean, I'm, I'm in love with all the players. I'm in love with the city. Believe me, man, I, I really, that place there uh, is everything I thought it was, you know, based on being a visitor uh, coach with the Angels coming into town. That was our favorite place to go. We always wanted to, when you got the schedule, when you go into Chicago, you always wanted to look that up. And then I got to work there for five years. Um, so, yeah, it um, started out uh, really wide open. It got a little bit more restrictive at the end, but that's cool. Everybody's got their different ways. And with the Angels, uh, Perry Manazian and I, uh, God, it's kind of like we're kindred spirits. Uh, he was raised the same way I was in this game. So I, I'm really enjoying um, how this is all working out right now. I'm having a blast. Uh, I really believe we're on the uh, we're ascending right now. We ended up the last season really well. And we just signed Noah Syndergaard. So heads up, we're getting better. Mr. Madden, I remember when you came to Chicago, you said that you were going to buy the media each a beer. I was part of that media, and I have yet to get that beer, sir. They, they, <laughs> they didn't show up after the uh, press conference. Uh, I do have to come back and do it. I think Sully's another guy. Uh, Sully's been on me about that. Uh, I've, but I have gone out for drinks with the boys, too. I have gone out with the, with the, uh, the riders there. We went out in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago. I think we were at Redbeard. So uh, I kind of guess I made it up to some, but not all. But I do. I got to get that done at some point. You're right. I wanted to do it at our restaurant, the Madden's Post. That was such a great place. That's, that's one of my biggest disappointments is that that restaurant didn't survive. Well, I'll buy the beers. I don't care how it happens. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We really appreciate it. No, listen, I had a great bread. was really good. Really good. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Who's who's doing his homework? You did your homework ah, pretty good, aren't I? You didn't expect that. Yeah, no, that was pretty. Uh, that was pretty severe. Well done. And, and the Very, other thing, uh, before we go, you, Boone, you know that I knew your grandpa pretty well too, right? I, you know what I remember because we just, me and you both had to do it, but we did it on separate days. He did that Princeton mm-hmm. Zoom, and. Okay. You know, okay. my son at the yeah, time, yeah. he he's he's with the Nationals yeah. now, right. but he was at Princeton and he said, "Hey, Joe Madden's coming." On. I said, "Joe's a good, he's a good dude." He goes, "I said, tell me how he does," and he mm-hmm. finished. He goes, "Yeah, he was great." And he mentioned, I think you mentioned my grandpa on that Zoom call. I, I well, I, you know what it was, I think, because um, the, the thing about Ray that really I remember most clearly was he was really big and he, he imparted upon me. You scout from where you see where you see the, uh, the the game the best. Wherever you wherever you see the game the best from, that's where you should sit and watch a game. He liked to sit down by the dugout, like, like on the first base side, I believe. And I would go down there to watch infield practice. I would move a lot as a scout during the game, but he always talked about sit where you see the game the best. Every night, I don't know if you've noticed, but like I said, I don't sit in the dugout. I stand on the rail. But I'm always down as close to home plate as I could possibly get on the rail during a game because that's where I see the game the best from. If I walk down the other end of the dugout to get a cup of water and I look up, it's like I'm watching something completely different than when I'm in my corner. So that was something Ray uh, imparted upon me at at, uh, Packard Stadium. I don't know the year it was, but it was at Sun Devil Stadium, Packard. And he he and I were bullshitting, and he told me I love – hanging around with him. He was such a good fellow. Such a good fellow. 
Yeah, Gramps was, yeah, man, he was a piece of work, but he was, I, I look back now, you know, because he's been gone since 04. Um, wow. What, what, a, oh, I, I miss, you know, just one more time I could have that conversation that, that right? uh, probably at the time I was like, Gramps, shut up. You've told me that for the 20th time. <laughs> now it's like, man, those stories, as I get a little bit older, those stories are so cool. And I appreciate and, that because he was, he was and there's really. One with you, there's, Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, there's one. There's one with you too. You remember when you went to Palm Springs and your dad was rehabbing? Uh, when was this? You know, what year? Uh, whatever year your dad was rehabbing, I was roving. I was in Palm Springs, and he brought you along. Oh, Palm Springs when 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 the Angels were. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. You know, I remember that. You know why I remember that trip? It's because it's the first time I tried tobacco back then. Remember all the all the tobacco <laughs> products. They were free oh, yeah. and they were in the clubhouse. They didn't monitor us like yep. now. That's I remember right. yep. I went behind. I, I grabbed a pack of tobacco, went out back, tried it. Got I was sick for two days, but I do remember <laughs> that trip. <laughs> you were taking ground balls at shortstop. I was I, with I, Schofield I was talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. I do yeah, remember that. that. I was actually, wow. I was out there talking to you. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, and I remember you hitting a, a bomb in left center at, on field three at or field one at Gene Autry park in the spring training game. Left center. <laughs> field three. I remember field. stuff, man. I remember things. It's incredible. That, what I remember. Yeah. That is, that's going things. way back. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, you had is. that violent swing brother that you just come unglued. I said, bam. And, and it would just go. It would just go. Yeah. Well, thanks. That was a lot of fun. That's that's going to be a good one. It'll it. uh, we'll, it'll be out next week, and I'll uh, you know I'll shoot it to you when when it comes okay, out. Okay, but listen seriously. Thank you because you did you did really well. You did really well. I mean that. Um, you know, you get into things like this, and um, from the beginning, I tell you, did your research, and I appreciate that. That was you really did well. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joe. Thank appreciate you. It. All right. Well, say hi to everybody, all right? Tell your dad I will. too, all right? I will. All right, man. All right. Good luck this Thank year. You very all, much. Right. all right. Have man. a good night. We now. miss you. Miss you too, man. Thanks. See ya. <laughs> See you guys. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound, don't you? <laughs> I know it all too well, Dan. That would be mailbox time, Dan. Mailbag. Mailbag, mailbox. It's the same thing. Brett Boone, yeah, this one comes from like that. <laughs> this one comes from Jennifer in Montana, and she wants to know this. Brett, what's the single best piece of advice you got going into the professional leagues? Uh, let's see. Professional leagues. Well, that's not said correctly. Um, that's what she said, but I can say yeah, major you know leagues. what? You know what? It, it wasn't necessarily what was said to me. Um it was the examples I was given as a kid. And, uh, I, you know, I, I grew up in a very blessed life. I got to hang around big leaguers, Hall of Famers, my whole childhood. And it was normal for me. But and I never had a favorite. I, I was never a big fan of anybody. I was a big fan of baseball. I was a big fan of all the players. But the one thing my dad taught me was that I respect more than anything to this day is how to behave like a pro how to act like a pro, how to walk like a pro. I think my dad epitomized that. I think he's, that's why he's held in such high regard in this game. Not what he did. You know, he won, he won uh, seven gold gloves, 
but it was more about how he did it, how he handled himself. And uh, he, to me, the consummate pro. And, and uh, so it wasn't really words. It was more actions. And I got to give a lot of that credit to Pops. All right. Back to the mailbag we go. This one comes from Frank, and he's in Lansing, and he wants to know, Brett, after spending so much time with your dad in the locker room and around those those big teams he was on, how much different was it when you got to be the big leaguer, and was everything kind of the same in, in a reference of uh, how it was in the locker room and how, th- how you were treated? Well, the, the thing about the misconception is everybody always thought, oh, this is no big deal for you, Brett. You know, you grew up in big league locker rooms. Well, big difference when you're a little snot-nosed kid running around and, and this is what you do for a living, night and day. Um, so so I, I don't know. I think I was just like every other rookie, you know, just hair on fire, uh, you know, goggles on, just, I was looking one way. I just wanted to prove that I belonged here. So it, it, it wasn't a comfort factor because I'd grown up. Like I said, being a, being a little kid running around with not a worry in the world and no responsibilities, one thing, but going, putting on a uniform. And if you don't play well, you get fired. That's another. So uh, I think I had the same experience as, as every other rookie in the big leagues, just it, it was familiar territory because I'd actually been in that locker room before, but, but, Definitely when you when you make that when you make that switch and now you're a player and this is for real and this is your living, uh, completely different animal. So, you know, I think it was similar to all the other rookies out there. All right, well that's gonna do it for this here Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy and the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The EP executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the show by leaving a review on whatever platform you consume the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you on the next one.